0: Well, good morning, church. It is well with my soul. Uh, Being in this place with human beings is so much better. Uh, And to you online, good morning. We cannot wait until you can join us here as well. Well, hey, welcome back. After three months of not being together, here we are And uh, I, for one, am thrilled to have the opportunity to open God's word with you. Uh, Over the past uh, several months, and really this year, we are taking some time in our sermon series to unpack our church name, Radiant Bible Church. Uh, We began this series looking at our radiant God. And I don't have the front screens here, Wes, if that's possible to get them. Thank you. Uh, We began this year looking at radiant God grasping his greatness. Uh, We began by this whole concept of the most important thing that comes, or the most important thing about any of us is what comes into our mind when we think about God. That's why we started here because the God that we serve is unimaginably great and awesome. Uh, There is none like him. He is holy, he is eternal, unchangeable in his power and perfection, in his goodness, and in his glory. This God that we serve, he is faithful, he's good and he's in control, truths that we need to grab onto during these seasons of life. We started here because if we get this wrong, we get everything else wrong. We wanna be a church that is about glorifying God Almighty above all else, and we want to be a people who live our lives before the face of this great God. Well, we are now four weeks into our second sermon series this year, uh, Radiant God, Trusting His Word. Uh, This is where we're looking at the Bible portion of our name, and what we've come to understand is that uh, we want to be a people who are in the book and a people who are shaped by the book. We want our lives to be lived in joyful submission to all that God has spoken. God has spoken. The creator of everyone and everything has revealed truth about who he is, who we are, and how we can enjoy relationship with him forever. In the Bible, we hear the true unchanging and glorious voice of God that cuts through all the noise of life, giving us exactly what we need and satisfying our souls. Radiant God trusting his word is a celebration of God's word and it's a call for us as a church to be a people that are shaped by God's word. Now we've been proclaiming all kinds of truths about the Bible, but we don't wanna miss this reality. The Bible is not just a bunch of facts and propositions that are thrown out there. It's not a series of disconnected stories. The Bible is one big story from Genesis to Revelation, telling the story of God Almighty redeeming a people unto himself. It's not just a story that we read about, it's a story that you and I are a part of, even as we sit in this room. Uh, Alasdair MacIntyre, a Scottish philosopher, says it well. He says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself a part of? So uh, this morning, we step back and we ask the question, is there a story, a true story of the whole world in which you and I are called to live our lives in? Uh, Allow me to illustrate this morning. I brought a friend. Uh, Imagine with me two men at a bus stop, and I promise this is not a bad joke, okay, Two men at a bus stop, and one leans over to the other and he says, Historionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus is the name of the common wild duck. Now, it sounds very, very odd, and you can only understand what's happening here if it's put into a broader context that is, a story that makes sense of this man's communication. Uh, Perhaps. Uh, he is just mistaken this other individual at the bus stop for somebody he ran into the library the day before who asked him, do you, sir, happen to know the name of the common wild duck? Or maybe he's just left a session with his psychotherapist and he's trying to get over his shyness and so the psychotherapist is encouraging him to have conversations with even strangers and he says, well, what should I talk about? Well, just anything at all, I suppose. And this is what he comes out of the gates with. Or... Maybe he's a spy and he's meeting his contact at the bus stop and that's his code name and he says Histrionicus and then they know they're in it together. You see, depending on which story this phrase, this story finds itself in, it has a wide range of meaning and significance. Each story has a significant impact on what's happening here. And this is true of all of human life a Hindu scholar, was once talking to a Christian theologian. He's a scholar of world religions. This is what he said, I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole of creation and the history of the human race, and therefore, a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. That is unique. There's nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside the Bible. So brothers and sisters, I invite you to lean in this morning and to hear the story of all stories. The story of the Bible that gives value, meaning and significance to your life and to my life. It is the true story that we find ourselves a part of even this morning as we sit in this room. Here's an overarching sentence of what all of scripture is about. God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant in Christ for his glory. Here we go, the story of the Bible in 30 minutes or less. It takes place in four acts. It begins in act one with God. God, eternal God, unchangeable, God existing eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who out of his very nature creates everything that has been made. The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God, and it's because God is prior. He is established before. He is the uncaused causer of all things. And in Genesis chapters one and two, we read the story of God's spirit speaking all of creation into existence. He says, let there be, and it was, and he observes it and says, it is good. Six days of this glorious creation of God breathing stars out of his mouth and causing things that weren't in being to come into being, and then he gets to day six, and he creates mankind as the pinnacle of his creation. There is nothing else like human beings in all that God has made. We were created specially and uniquely to relate with God, that is to have a communion or a relationship with him and to reflect him in a way that the rest of creation was not created to do. Genesis chapter one, verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, He created them. God sees everything. He gets to the end of day six. He talks about all that He's made and He says, It is very good. It's exactly as He intended for it to be. There is not any bit of it that is out of order or out of place. Mankind enjoying this beautiful, this glorious, this miraculous relationship with God Almighty and all was well in the world. But we all know that's not where the story ends. You see, instead of serving God and delighting in this relationship that we had with him, we demanded that God serve us. Instead of submitting ourselves underneath his good and his good reign over our lives, we rebelled against the Lord and we said, Lord, I think I know better. And I think that there's a superior good that exists outside of the good that you've offered me in yourself. And so I am going to seek satisfaction in anything but God. God, you've been holding out on me. And so, because I believe there's something better out there, I'm gonna go and seize it for myself. This breaks our relationship with God and it throws the whole world into complete and total upheaval. All of the brokenness and the sadness and the death and the hurt that you see going on in our world and that you have experienced infiltrating your life is because of this rebellion against God. It is because we thought that there is a good that exists outside of all that our good and gracious Father has already granted to us, Because of that, mankind and the earth now lived under a curse. In our rebellion, we were cursed. Man, woman, Satan, and the earth, all of it living underneath the judgment of turning away from God and seeking our own way. Mankind's relationship with God was severed. We were cut off from relationship with God. We became strangers, no longer part of his family. We were no longer with God. We were now in opposition to God. The Bible says that we were alienated, that we were far off. Because of this, mankind was banished from the very presence of God, no longer able to enjoy the infinitely satisfying presence of God Almighty. There's a great children's book, it's called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross, and in there it says, because of your sin, you can't come in. This was our reality. This is not just Adam and Eve sometime long ago. This is you and me and everyone else who turned from the Lord in our rebellion and were cast out of the presence of God. Now, how does the Lord respond to this? I mean, is God out of control? Has God somehow lost control of the reins in this whole world situation? Is there some kind of other power out there, a power for evil that's on equal footing, equal standing, equal strength as God, and God is just warring it out back and forth between good and evil, and God sometimes is like, I don't, I don't understand. I don't know how I can't make it happen. I, I just, I, I don't know why I've lost control of this whole situation. God's not up in heaven yelling, help! Someone! No, God is in complete control at every point. There is nothing that's ever happened in your life. There is nothing that has ever happened in the history of the universe that stands outside of the umbrella of God's good and sovereign providence. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is in complete control. He is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. How will God reconcile mankind, how will he restore the relationship while at the same time dealing with the sin and the rebellion? This is the question that the story of the Bible begins to answer. After the first 11 chapters of Genesis and a worldwide flood because every intention of man became only evil always continuously, God begins again and people continue in their sin and in their rebellion and then Genesis slows down and zooms in in Genesis chapter 12 and God begins to deal with one man and his family, Abram and Sarah, he's 75 years old and he's childless when the Lord appears. And he says to him, Abraham, I am going to bless you and I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through your family. And Abraham says, that sounds great, but I don't think my family's really gonna continue. I'm 75, Uh, in Romans, Paul says that his body was as good as dead, that's a nice thing to say about someone, and Abraham's wondering, God, what are you gonna do here? And the Lord promises that he's going to give him a family And through his family, he's gonna bring redemption and blessing for all mankind. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, one of whom is Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery. He's in Egypt. God causes a famine to come on the whole ancient Near Eastern world. And so God moves his people from where they were to the land of Egypt. And there they live peacefully until that Pharaoh dies and another pharaoh comes who's concerned about God's people and their fruitfulness, and he says, well, what do we do when someone becomes a threat? Well, we oppress them, we enslave them, we put them in bondage, and so that's what the pharaoh does, and then for 400 years, God's people experience slavery in Egypt, all the while wondering, God, do you even see? God, do you even care? God, right now we're crying out to you. Do you even hear the things that we're crying out to you? God, where are you? We read in Exodus, the Lord sees, the Lord hears, the Lord cares, and the Lord is going to respond and he is going to act in such a decisive way because of his covenant, because of his promise that he made with Abraham. He is going to act on behalf of his people. On the worldwide stage, God supernaturally releases his people from bondage, bringing them through the Red Sea, and while they're out in the wilderness, he says, hey, this is what it looks like to have relationship with me. This is what it looks like to be my people. This is what it looks like to live in such a way that brings me honor and glory. In light of me rescuing you, now live this way. Sounds familiar right? And so God's people begin to uh, try to live out this new life that God has called them to. And we get to the end of Moses' time. And then Joshua gets ready to bring God's people into the land that he had promised them. And as they're getting ready to go in, they're like, do you think that you can live in accordance with God's law? And they're like, yes, we can. Moses is like, you sure? They're like, yeah, we, we think so. Well, they get in. They conquer the land of Canaan. They establish themselves there. Joshua's getting ready to die, and he asks the people, can you continue to live in accordance with God's ways? Yes, we can. I don't think you can, Joshua says. They're like, no, really, we'll give it a shot. The next book is Judges, which is like the darkest time in Israel's history, one of the most twisted times full of rampant sin. Uh, The continued refrain is, every man did what was right, in his own eyes, kind of like there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads to death. And that's what the entire nation experienced as they gave themselves to sin and idolatry. And it gets to the end of this time period, and then the people cry out, and they they say to Samuel, the prophet, well, Samuel, give us a king like all the other nations, by the way, the ones that we just conquered, but it seems like a good idea. Give us a king like the rest of the nations so that we might have someone to look to God says to Samuel, okay, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me from being king over them. So let's give them the king that they want. And this is the first of the failed kings in a united kingdom. King Saul is exactly what the nations would want for a king. He's tall, he's handsome, he's strong, he's smart. But on his inside, in his heart, he's full of jealousy, selfish ambition, conceit, and it leads to his demise. God rejects him from being king over his people because Saul failed to submit himself to God's good and loving rule. And so he passes the kingdom to David. David called a man after God's own heart. Now, David wasn't a man after God's own heart because he was completely righteous. In fact, we read that David was, he committed murder, he at least committed adultery, possibly rape. So it's not because he was completely righteous. No, it's because he was a repenter. Because he knew that he could only cast himself on the mercy of God and cry out to him, have mercy on me, O God, create in me a new heart and restore a right spirit to me. He was completely dependent on God's grace in his life. As he's getting towards the end of his life, he's in his palace, he's looking around and he's saying, why do I live in such a beautiful home and God's Ark of the Covenant is still sitting in a a tent somewhere? I'm gonna build a house for God. 2 Samuel chapter seven, God says, David, I'm gonna build you a house that is a dynasty, that is I'm going to bring a king from your line who will establish his kingdom and he will sit on his throne and of his kingdom, there will be no end. The promise that God made to Abraham has been narrowed through, now it's gonna come from David's family and there is coming a king, one of David's children's children's children who would sit on a throne and of that kingdom, there would be no end. David gives his kingdom to Solomon, his son. During Solomon's time in 1 Kings chapter eight, it's the pinnacle of Old Testament worship. The temple is erected and God's people come and worship him and I say the pinnacle because after that, it begins spiraling out of control. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, rather than listening to the elders' wisdom, looks to the young men's ambition and follows their counsel rather than the elders and the kingdom of Israel splits into two. There's civil war and rebellion. Rebellion. the northern kingdom made of 10 tribes, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah, made of two tribes. This is where we get into the season of faithful prophets in a divided kingdom. It's stories of good kings and mostly bad kings moving from wickedness to wickedness, evil to evil, consistently pursuing idolatry. Things get so bleak a few times in Israel's history that they actually begin even sacrificing their children to these false gods of the nations around them. And all the while God is consistently saying, repent. Come back. Turn from your sin. Restore our relationship. Stop running from me and start running to me instead. And again and again and again, God's people turn away from him. Well, because of this, the people are taken into exile. In 722, the Assyrians come in and they wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel. In 586 BC, the kingdom of Babylonia comes in and they take away the people of Judah. They remove them from the land, no longer enjoying the promises that God had made to them because they failed to keep their side of the covenant. And even here in the midst of exile, God continues to demonstrate his faithfulness, his love, and his care for his people. The book of Daniel is written in the midst of exile and it demonstrates that there is no king that can conquer God's kingdom. That God is using the kings of the world, the kings of the other nations to accomplish his good and sovereign plan. The book of Esther talks about how God preserves his people, how he saves them when it looks like they're going to become extinct because he has a promise that he has to make good on. God brings his people back into the land and they experience 400 years of silence. Now praise God, this is not the end of the story. The old covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant with all the laws and regulations, it bore a ministry of, of condemnation. It demonstrated that no one would ever be declared righteous by works of the law, that no one could meet God's holy and righteous standard. But the Old Testament doesn't end in judgment, but rather with an eye towards hope. In Jeremiah 31, God makes another promise to his people. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And God's people said hallelujah or amen or something because that is a beautiful, beautiful promise for you and for me. The Old Testament closes with promises left unfulfilled. It demands a sequel. God will see his kingdom purposes established, but there's still the unsolved question of how God will deal with sin and yet still bring his people into relationship with him. This moves us into act three, redemption. The New Testament, it is the climax of the one grand story that began back in the Old Testament. It opens with the Gospels, four portraits of Jesus, four stories of who Jesus is and what he came to do and why he had to do it. It's been said that the Gospels are stories of Jesus' death and resurrection with extended introductions. Jesus came for a purpose. He was on mission for the glory of the Father and for the good of his people. Romans chapter five, verses 16 and then 18 and 19, it says, and the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, that is talking about Adam, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, that is a right standing before God's presence. Therefore, How glorious. We at one point identified with Adam and because we identified with Adam, we took on all of Adam's condemnation. But now for all of those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, we can identify with him and receive all of his righteousness. We can stand completely justified in the presence of God Almighty because of the sinless life of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life. As our representative, there was not one single moment where he ever did something contrary to the Father's will, not a single moment of sin or selfishness, always being faithful. Jesus lived a perfect life. Philippians chapter two tells us that though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbles himself, is perfectly obedient, and dies in our place so that we can have relationship with the Lord. He lived, died, and rose again for sinners, and God will save you if you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus if you, like David, become a repenter and cast yourself upon the mercy of God, we can be redeemed, bought back from our sin, reconciled and restored in relationship with God. Romans chapter three, the best paragraph in the whole Bible, starting in verse 21, says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is a substitutionary sacrifice, one to stand in our place by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the second Adam. He is the promised redeeming one from Genesis chapter three. He is Abraham's true offspring, the one whom he would bring blessing to the entire nations. He's the inaugurator of the new covenant made in Jeremiah chapter 31. He's the man that lived the life that we were always supposed to live. He's the ultimate Davidic king. He is the son of God making his sacrifice infinite. He is Emmanuel. God with us. He is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. In Christ, sin is fully punished and salvation is freely offered. The sin bearer becomes the sin conqueror. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you and I might be counted as the righteousness of God. And so Jesus says, "Go and tell everyone of this glorious hope that they can find in me." Redemption is proclaimed by a new covenant people. After Jesus rises again in Acts chapter one, verse eight, he tells his disciples, and you are witnesses and you will be my witnesses. And when the spirit comes on you, you will go to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, proclaiming this gospel, this good news of a hopeful relationship restored with God Almighty. The whole story of the rest of the Bible is God's people filled with God's spirit, proclaiming God's word so that God might be glorified. God's people filled with God's spirit, proclaiming God's word so that God might receive glory as more and more of his children come home, as they turn from their rebellion and as they trust in him. Our lives, yours and mine, even as we sit in this room, that is why we continue to exist on this side of eternity. That our words, our lives, our testimony might point to the one who called us out of darkness and into his glorious light and we gather together in local churches so that we might remind each other of these truths and spur one another on in these truths and then propel one another out to be tellers of this story so that more and more would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. We listen to his word proclaimed and we study his word that we might be a people shaped by his word, living in submission to his word and becoming heralds of that word. Now, Praise God that this is not the end of the story even here. We don't continue to perpetuate in this existence forever because there is a coming day. There are still more promises yet to be resolved. God still has more in store for his people. Revelation chapter 21 gives an overview of what existence will look like in the years beyond. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and this is so beautiful. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Just as it was in the beginning, when man in their sinlessness was able to dwell in the very presence of God, the all-satisfying presence of God, so there is a day coming when we will be able to dwell in his presence again. God will dwell with us and we will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Praise God and death shall be no more. Praise God. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Praise God, for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a new existence, a new creation in which all of the sad things will come untrue, in which all of the pain and the hurt that we have experienced in this existence will be wiped away and we will be with the Lord forever. Fully satisfied, him completely Glorified by his people. Jesus will return. He is coming again. And when he does, just as Revelation 19 declares, he will make war on all of those who continue in rebellion against him. He will bring down his judgment, and as he does, he will finally and fully establish his kingdom. And in that kingdom, it will only be justice and righteousness. It will only be glorious in his presence and satisfying to our souls. Mankind will be back in perfect fellowship with God forever. God will banish sin forever. Rather than banishing his sinful people from his presence, he will do away with their sin and he will keep them to himself. We will not just be free from the penalty and the power of sin, but we will also be free from the presence of sin and it will be glorious. No longer will God say to us because of your sin you can't come in, Jesus will say I've dealt with your sin, enter into the joy of your king. Life and relationship will be exactly as God intended for it to be and it will be such forever. The Bible, it's not a series of disconnected stories. The Bible is not primarily about you and me and what we should do. The Bible is primarily about Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he promises to do in the coming future and for eternity. God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant in Christ for his glory. This is the story of the universe, the story that gives shapes to our lives today and will forever. The Bible tells this one story that climaxes in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in this glorious story. We rejoice in who you are, that out of your love and out of the relationship that you enjoy as the three persons of the Trinity, you created us. That you desire to satisfy us eternally and yet Lord, we turned from you in our rebellion and oh, thank you Jesus for rescuing us from our rebellion. We give you glory and honor for this beautiful story that only you could have made with all of its twists and turns and yet knowing the whole time that you were sovereign over it all just as you are sovereign over each of our stories in this room. So, Father, I pray that we would live our lives as tellers of this story, that we would live our lives as lovers of this story, that we would live our lives as participants in this story, knowing that it ends in your glorious presence. Oh, we can't wait. In Jesus' name, amen.